Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Max Blumenthal, the editor of The Gray Zone and author of The Management of Savagery. Max, welcome to Pushback. Great to be here, Aaron. You have been on the ground covering the Stop the Steal riot and its aftermath. You were there that day on January 6th. You've also been covering what the response has been, including this military lockdown of the Capitol. Just talk to us first about your impressions about what you're seeing on the streets of D.C. right now and the aftermath of the riot. Yeah, I've been on the ground because I pretty much live there. Uh, I live across the Anacostia River from Capitol Hill, so it's not very hard for me to get up there and see what's taking place. And it's been pretty striking to witness events since January 6th and even in the days leading up to it. Uh, by the time this is published, there should be a piece by me on the Gray Zone, um, on, on the YouTube channel, uh, video package about what is effectively a military occupation of central D.C. I went to the Federal Center area, which is a little bit south of the National Mall. It is flanked with military vehicles, police cars, and then as you move closer to the Capitol, there are 12, there are are blocks and blocks and blocks of instantly erected 12-foot non-scalable fencing with thousands of National Guard troops behind them milling around aimlessly with lethal weapons, which they were authorized to possess inside D.C. and to use. Um, that's the red zone. The red zone is forbidden to all non-official traffic, including foot traffic. And I was walking in the green zone which is an area where local residents can walk, businesses can be open, but vehicle traffic is essentially forbidden except for official vehicles which are swept for weapons. And obviously the red zone is closer to the um, public building, the federal buildings, the national mall where the inaugural ceremony is to be held. And it's basically a ghost town. It's extremely eerie. I interviewed, people on the street who just happened to be passing by about what they thought these were local DC residents. And I expected a more, uh, given the level of propaganda that the troops are here to keep us safe, that they're protecting us from fascists and domestic terror attacks, I expected more support. And instead, what I got was a consensus of unease. People are very unsettled and do not welcome this much of a military presence, at least those I spoke to. Uh, And many of them asked where these security forces were on January 6th when the Capitol was sacked by uh, several thousand Trumpist hooligans. That's, to me, a very rational response. And others asked why there were so many troops out during the Black Lives Matter protests last June, which were basically assaulted by the military and National Guard and DC police on June 1st. I was there as well. And why they weren't there on January 6th. I mean, these are the important questions to ask. But beyond that, um, we are being subjected to the presence of more troops than the US maintains in South Korea. More troops by a factor of three than the U.S. maintains in Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq. And at the gray zone, we obviously support the withdrawal of all of those troops. But the imperial 
wars in many ways are coming home, not only with this massive military presence in the capital, but through the presence of a disproportionate number of military veterans who uh, stormed the capital. And so now we're in a situation where this is being normalized in response to fascism or the, the, the fascist threat. And there are various publicity stunts taking place in addition to fear-mongering propaganda to normalize the, this military presence, this sense of military rule. Celebrity chef Jose Andres, who is you know one of these big resistance characters who has used his anti his kind of leveraged anti-Trump hatred or resentment to build up his own celebrity and his culinary empire. He's here to provide food to the troops. He's presenting it as though it's a sort of disaster relief mission. He went out with Nancy Pelosi last Saturday to provide food to them. And his Instagram channel is filled with thousands and thousands of fawning comments, mostly from anti-Trump liberals supporting what he's doing in order to keep us, quote unquote, safe. And I think that's a really dangerous perspective that these troops are actually here to keep us safe. It's normalizing their presence and the entire expanding apparatus of the national security state. Why it's dangerous is because the next time, well, one reason it's dangerous, is because the next time anyone runs an effective campaign to end police militarization through legislative reforms, for example, or a national protest campaign to defund the police, or an anti-war campaign, to reduce the Pentagon's, what, $800 billion budget, they're going to come back and point to this episode and say, well, when Trumpist hooligans were storming the Capitol, you were begging for us and you were saying that we weren't there. And then we came to protect you. And so what you're saying is that we should be more vulnerable to domestic extremism, the same argument that was used about Al-Qaeda or ISIS during the war on terror. And so basically opened ourselves up for a massive expansion of the security state and just walking around D.C., you're getting a sort of a preview of what's to come. On the question of what happened on January 6th, I mean, you were there. There are some people who think there was this high level conspiracy involving the Pentagon and the Capitol Police and other officials, possibly with Trump's involvement, to basically facilitate this mob. Um, another explanation, and this is the one that I'm more partial to, although I wasn't there, so I don't know, but this is just my speculation, is that this is just the result of kind of the blind spots of the national security state. They're focused on things like Black Lives Matter, as you mentioned before. They'll send out troops and forces for that. But for something like this, they're, they're just, they, their eyes are not on the ball. Being there, being amongst the people uh, who stormed the Capitol, what's your sense of, of what happened there? Well, I just think it's important to keep the events in the proper perspective and to respond in a proportionate way, um, because it obviously deserves to be taken very seriously that thousands, maybe tens of thousands of far-right hooligans, militia members could get together and mobilize this kind of force to overrun um, Capitol Police storm into a federal building, but they were also, I mean, I referred to them on 
Twitter kind of jokingly as Ku Klux clowns because being among them, it was almost like a far right Burning Man atmosphere of just clownishness. And the New Yorker video, which was recently released, uh, there was a New Yorker photographer, Luke Mogelson, who was inside, actually got in the Senate chamber. I got there after the rioters had been pushed out of the Capitol. And, you know, you see the QAnon shaman belting out prayers from the the speaker's podium, and it just looks absolutely ridiculous. They're rifling through papers at various members of Congress's desks and saying, uh, there's got to be something in here we can do to, uh, to, to screw these people over. But they obviously don't have any idea what they're doing. Once they got in the building, they really didn't have much of a plan. Hey! Fucking hey, man. Glad to see you guys. You guys are fucking patriots. Look at this guy. He's got covered in blood. God bless you. You good, sir? Do you need medical attention? I'm good, thank you. All right. I got shot in the face. I got shot in the face with some kind of plastic bullet. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure they ain't disrespecting the place. Okay, just want to let you guys know this is like the sacredest place. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has stated that half of Congress was going to be assassinated or murdered. And it's that kind of rhetoric that I think loses sight of what really took place and is aiming at propelling an agenda of securitization that will continue the de-democratization of this country. And someone who contradicted AOC on that day, went way off message, was Cori Bush, another member of the squad who conducted an interview with the local St. Louis NBC affiliate from inside her office while the riot was taking place. And Cori Bush was asked, are you afraid? And she said, no, I'm not, I'm not afraid. I was a Ferguson protester and I'm not afraid, but she's very confident in her office. I personally, I didn't feel afraid in any way. You know, I just, I didn't like what I was seeing. And, you know, and I couldn't understand why people would want to break into the Capitol, like this is our house, but democracy has to be defended, you know, and that was not, that was not it. And so I just couldn't understand why people would want to do something like this. And so it was just the, it was just that, but uh, afraid, not at all. I mean, I've, you know, I came through Ferguson, you know, this is, you know, and that was actual protest. This here, this was a coup. This was an insurrection. What she was essentially saying and what she almost said explicitly was she saw what was taking place outside. She took an elevator to the Capitol basement and then she was in her office. What does that mean? Well, if you know how the Capitol building works, as I do, I've been in there many times. Um, you know, I grew up in DC, so I've, I've, I've probably gone scores of times. And there, there are tunnels from the Capitol building to the Longworth building and to the Hart building, to the buildings where there are offices where members of Congress work. And Cori Bush had taken one of those tunnels, gone to her office. I was outside the Longworth building and the Trumpist mob was not paying any attention to the Longworth building. And I saw staff members hanging out the windows, looking at what was taking place. Um, I assumed they were fairly secure in there and an armada of buses rolled up with police escorts to basically evacuate whoever was left. And I, I mean, it was amazing, like 
the people at the Stop the Steal rally weren't even paying attention to it. I'm not trying to uh, diminish what took place there, but if this was some like fascist coup to assassinate half of Congress and lynch Mike Pence in the middle of the National Mall planned by the Pentagon, then our military command structure, which is actually conservative, but filled with people who are anti-Trump because they consider him a threat to U.S. soft power, uh, they're, they're pathetic. I mean, if that's what actually took place and there was this conspiracy, that, that, that was one of the most half-baked conspiracies ever. So, I, I mean, I don't want to get into semantics about whether it was a coup or not, but we need to keep it in proper perspective. This was something that Trump inspired in order to send a message first and foremost to Mitch McConnell and the Republican Party. And he and his son, Don Jr., they said so from the stage uh, at the main Stop the Steal rally. They said this is about maintaining control of the Republican Party. And Don Jr. said for the next four years, if you oppose the Make America Great, America First agenda, I'm going to be showing up in your backyard. So the McConnell Republicans, the the center, I mean, the corporate wing of the Republican Party, the establishment Republicans, they want to get rid of Trump just as much as Nancy Pelosi does. And now you have a situation where the, the overblown per, uh, perspective on what took place is driving an expansion of the security state much in the same way that the response to 9-11, a much more severe attack in which over 3,000 people died, did. And in a similar way to the conjuring of a Russian hack of the DNC and Trump sort of stealing the election with Russian assistance did as well. And so we have this constant continuum of shock and awe style events to frighten sectors of the public, particularly the progressive way, the progressive demographic that traditionally opposes wars and is skeptical of um, you know, government security overreach to paralyze them into submission. And that's what I see taking place in response to this. So it's important to avoid, con to avoid overblown conspiratorial thinking when what took place really occurred in the open. And I guess there's one more thing I would want to say was um, in the heat of the moment, when I saw the video footage of Ashley Babbitt shooting this military veteran and pro-Trump activist who was shot inside the Capitol by a Capitol police officer, which is really the main act of lethal violence that day, it was captured on camera. I opposed it because I oppose police wantonly shooting people. I mean, I just said, I don't care what her political beliefs are. I completely oppose what she stands for. It disgusts me, but she shouldn't have been shot. There must have been another way. But when you actually look at the context and what was taking place leading up to it, there was a mob rampaging through the Capitol. They were overrunning every police attempt to stop them. The police were simply outnumbered. And they reached a point where they apparently were about to threaten someone's life. And while I still can't say I support shooting an unarmed citizen, that shooting stopped the mob in its tracks. And SWAT arrived on the scene, uh, some tactical unit from the police arrived on the scene, and the mob just simply reversed itself. They just went out, they left, and I arrived as the mob was leaving, and I interviewed several of the people who were there who were witnesses, including people with Ashley Babbitt's blood on their hands because they tried to 
help her. And that was pretty much the end of their rampage, the end of the most violent part of the rampage, which consisted of breaking windows and screaming and sort of threatening people. And so, uh, again, it took one bullet to turn back that mob. By uh, about 5.36, the the, uh, police forces that were on the scene, park police, D.C. police, they began pepper spraying the crowd pretty heavily, sorry, uh, tear gassing the crowd pretty heavily and hitting it with flashbangs, percussion grenades. Um, People started moving back. By 7 p.m., Congress was back in session. And so I think it's important to just avoid extreme explanations for what took place and consider the fact that there are already existing laws on the book that can be applied. Yeah. And if there is a case for a plausible case for a conspiracy, my bet would be on the speculation around certain members of Congress. There are those, there are those reports about certain, certain Republicans giving reconnaissance tours to some of the riders the day before. And Ayanna, Ayanna Presley said that the reset button, that, that the alarm button in her office was ripped out, uh, which if that is true, then that could be the work of some kind of insider. So there obviously should be some kind of investigation. I guess where my concern has been is where there's been this speculation that this was something high level, you know, involving high levels of the Pentagon and even the White House, where, as you say, this just doesn't seem like the workings of a sophisticated, executed plan. I've seen no evidence that Lauren Boebert and her reconnaissance group had any effect. And this is one of the most clownish members of Congress ever, who probably uh, should be arrested simply for violating D.C.'s handgun laws. I mean, you have young men in D.C. who are constantly hunted by the basically mobile stop and frisk crews of the Metro DC police and they are getting arrested all the time for simply possessing illegal handguns. She's doing that, but what she did there hasn't been substantiated. Then Ayanna Presley's panic buttons. I mean, this sounds, it really reminds me of so many of the post 9-11 scare stories. I mean, I have a panic button right here. It's called a cell phone. Like if I you know, dial 911 on my cell phone, it will do the same thing as a panic button. I didn't even know they had panic buttons, but it, you know, reminds me of that like Hollywood horror film panic room. It's just these absurd stories. There was another absurd story yesterday and I actually, I shouldn't call it an absurd story. It's more an absurd reception of a headline that contains spin that reminds me of the way that so many Russiagate related stories were consumed by people on the center left and the liberal left. And it was a report by AP that the, that the Pentagon and FBI fear an insider attack on Biden's inauguration, which prompted liberal presidential historian Michael Bechlas to call for holding the inaugural ceremony in a fortress or a military base. I don't know what fortresses exist that aren't military bases. Maybe the My Pillow guy can build a pillow fortress, or he's talking about Fort Knox or Castle Grayskull. But basically, he's calling for Biden to go back into his basement that he was in throughout the campaign and to be inaugurated in his basement, surrounded by 25,000 troops. But no, the troops can't even be there. And so you actually look into the text of that article, read the article. 
And Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy declares that there are no threats that we are aware of right now of an insider attack. We're simply um, conducting vetting. Military Times, which covers the Pentagon and all four branches full time, had a story three days before that AP report yesterday, which reported the same exact thing, that the military is vetting National Guard members present in Washington for extremism. I don't know what ex how they define extremism. Is it Trump support? Is it white supremacy? But, it, you know, that seems like maybe a wise protocol at this point. But that report was tweeted out by this um, liberal bot. I'm not even sure if he's a real person. Kyle Griffin. You know, every time he like farts or coughs, it gets 5,000 retweets. And he tweeted, AP, not, uh, FBI fears insider attack at inauguration. And then every other liberal influencer account and, and so many people who I would even affiliate with the left retweeted it or commented on it without actually reading the article. And all of this do does, all that this does is lend itself to the atmosphere of um, martial rule, uh, rushing to the security state for protection and preserving this emergency rule that is currently prevailing in DC. There's really no other response. And I, I'm really, I guess, depressed that people can't see through it after what we went through during the war on terror and now during the new Cold War with all of this fear mongering about Russia and China. Now, of course, we face a domestic uh, a, a threat. I mean, the US, faces a threat to its stability from the far right. That's true, but it's, it's been true. There have been far right militias in the US and now they're going to be treated in the same way that Al Qaeda and ISIS were treated. And that's gonna lead to just the most paranoid atmosphere that we've ever lived through, as well as a gigantic boon for the security state that completely failed on January 6th. One more example of what you're talking about in terms of Russiagate-style media reporting. You had Jim Shudo of CNN, the former Obama administration official, reporting that this uh, man from Virginia was arrested with fake inaugural credentials, a loaded handgun, and over 500 rounds of ammunition. It turned out that he actually was a security contractor who was allowed to be there because he was supposed to work there to work security. Uh, but that was, of course, not before a similar thing where this got hyped into a massive story and as if they had found one more uh, would-be terrorist. Yeah, and that story was hyped up to justify the checkpoints that expand far from the area where the inauguration is going to take place and was sort of, it was, it was almost welcomed by a press that wanted to justify the military presence. So Jim Shudo former uh, chief of staff to the U.S. ambassador to China who worked out of the U.S. embassy in Beijing on a break from his journalistic career, went to work for the State Department and is basically a stenographer for the U.S. security state, hyped up that report without tweeting out the article. Uh, again, just completely irresponsible from a journalistic point of view. And it was seized on by who's who of media influencers until a reporter from the Washington Post actually went down to the court, uh, reviewed the affidavit, 
interviewed the man's wife and found that he was just a security guard who was authorized to work on the Capitol. But there, there, there was this sense that was deliberately created that there would be an armed assault on the Capitol and that we were just waiting for it. And that these troops were standing guard, protecting our population, not only here, but in capitals across the US. And so in the Michigan State Capitol, Ohio State Capitol, particularly in the purple states, those state capitals are ringed with armored vehicles and thousands of National Guard members. And I think in Columbus, maybe like 12 Boogaloo boys showed up and then they issued some like message of peace with their little machine guns, their, 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 their assault rifles. Um, nobody showed up in Trenton, New Jersey, maybe one person. And if you Google right now, um, capital rallies fail to materialize, just Google those words, you will get headline after headline from the states. It was pretty obvious that they were going to not materialize from my point of view, but the FBI and other um, wings of this gigantic security apparatus, the DHS, uh, the Pentagon itself, they needed to paper over and cover up the fact that they, for whatever reason, weren't interested in the open, clear, explicitly stated plans to storm the Capitol on Facebook and Parler in the days ahead of the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. So this is just a gigantic public relations operation for uh, an element of the U.S. government that partly shouldn't even exist. The Department of Homeland Security does not even need to exist. It is a post 9-11 confection that represents the growth of a national security state that itself did not need to exist except for the manufacturing of a Cold War with the Soviet Union. So now we've reached a new level and in an intensification and also an inversion where our wars have come home to the point where the security state has merged into the culture war. Another uh, irony is that for the last four years of Trump's presidency, the national security state was presented as the answer to Trump's dangers, that because he cast doubt on them, because he maligned the CIA or the FBI, that that was heretic and that these were the people who were going to prevent Trump from taking over the country. The irony then that the same national security state had this colossal failure in failing to stop a mob that Trump himself incited. So in other words, the national security state failed to do what we've been hearing for the last four years was one of their primary functions now was to stop Trump. And where are the calls from Democrats for a 9-11 style commission about that? Yeah. There, when impeachment, when the second impeachment proceedings took place, I watched most of the speeches and every Democrat, most of the Democrats read a kind of boilerplate statement about Trump and his emboldening of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, threatening democracy, inspiring an attack on democracy. And none of them called for an investigation, a 9-11 style investigation. But what we're seeing at the same time are calls, for example, on PBS NewsHour tonight, 
uh, some former security official called for a 9-11 commission on the threat of domestic extremism, which will uh, and, and, and to treat like the far right as a new Al Qaeda or ISIS. That was stated explicitly. And then we saw on Hillary Clinton's podcast, which is a great window into the simultaneously febrile and feverish mind state of our former Secretary of State and almost president. She was interviewing Nancy Pelosi and she speculated that Donald Trump was on the phone with Vladimir Putin planning the assault on the Capitol on January 6th. And therefore, we need a 9-11 style commission on Donald Trump's ties to Russia because we haven't had enough of that. We didn't have a commission impaneled by former FBI director Robert Mueller or an investigation led by him. And so now we need a commission. I hope historically we will find out who he's beholden to, who pulls his strings. Uh, I would love to see his phone records to see whether he was talking to Putin the day that uh, the insurgents mm -hmm. uh, invaded our capital. But we now know that not just him, but his enablers, his accomplices, his cult members have the same disregard for democracy. Do you think we need a 9-11 a type commission to investigate and report everything that they can pull together and explain what happened? I do. Uh, let me, again, uh, to your point of who is he beholden to, as I've said over and over, as I said to him in that picture with my blue suit, Right. As I was leaving, what I was saying to him, as I was pointing rudely at him, with you, Mr. President, all roads lead to Putin. I don't know what Putin has on him politically, financially, or personally. But what happened last week was a gift to Putin because Putin right. wants to undermine democracy in our country and throughout the world. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, wholeheartedly agreed and stated, well, her evidence is that all roads lead to Putin. So which is the mantra, which is the mantra of Blue Anon. And this clip right. from Hillary Clinton's podcast is a fascinating window into that cult. We've heard a lot about QAnon recently. There's been a lot of reporting on QAnon, talking to QAnon members about their daily lives and how they became so deranged. Well, Hillary Clinton's podcast is a great window into Blue Anon. I, I mean, that it's just it's just shocking that these people are not only so close to power, they are essentially in charge. And this is how they think. Now, the Democrats, and this includes the, the, the squad, which has been put up front to lead this impeachment initiative. In addition, Cori Bush had on January 5th, this is a day before the Stop the Steal attack, she had a draft bill that she tweeted out ready to... Uh, compel the resignation of Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and all the other Republican members of Congress who opposed certifying the presidential election. And then the next day provided all the impetus they needed to introduce that. But none of these figures, again, are calling for an investigation into this massive security failure, which if there is a conspiracy, would yield some evidence or would at least provide evidence of the continued desire to cover that up. And what I think, based on my own experiences observing these sorts of you know, what, Proud Boy incursions into D.C., which were taking place after the election, 
the Stop the Steal rallies began. There was one on November 11th, I believe. There was a, there was a subsequent one later that month. And you would see Proud Boys fraternizing with high-level officers from the D.C. police, not just rank and file, but people like um, Officer Glover, Officer Bagshaw. These are the people, the names that any Black Lives Matter protester knows because they come out in the, their white shirts and preside over the crackdowns on their rallies. They were seen uh, receiving first aid from Proud Boys after they <laughs> accidentally tear-gassed themselves. Um, and so they had this buddy-buddy relationship the D.C. police riot squads were present when Proud Boys were vandalizing local hotels and ripping Black Lives Matter signs off. They didn't do anything. And, and they, I think they expected that this crowd would continue to rout Antifa. I know local, um, local um, council members or uh, neighborhood council members actually who have had meetings with me uh, Metro Police who have told them that the greatest security threat to D.C. is Antifa and Black Lives Matter, but they, they, they call it Antifa. And so that's the perspective of the police. Muriel Bowser, who's the mayor, who is an acolyte of Mike Bloomberg and who is implementing a policy of stop and frisk, as I mentioned before, she actually requested National Guard in the days ahead of this Stop the Steal rally. And on January 4th, CNN reported that she received the amount she requested, which was about 300 members of the National Guard. So DC police, I'm sorry, the DC local leadership did not see enough of a threat in the Stop the Steal, despite open calls and planning for um, storming the Capitol to ask for anything more than 300 members of the National Guard. And those were granted by Christopher Miller, this figure who's supposed to be at the center of this grand Trumpist conspiracy to use the QAnon shaman and a bunch of hooligans to take over the government and implement uh, you know, permanent Trump junta. Um, all these reports kind of suggest something else was taking place, but something that still needs to be investigated and could be scandalous. But the Democrats in Congress are content with the Department of Homeland Security, Pentagon, and FBI, and Capitol Police allowing this having this investigation take place with their own internal inspector generals. Uh, whose independence I'm not entirely sure of, but they will be much less uh, transparent with less public involvement than an actual commission. I should mention one other commission that sort of the centrist technocracy that's coming into power is really interested in impaneling. And it was proposed by Jamie Raskin, who is a Democratic member of Congress from suburban D.C., a very wealthy district. He's a constitutional lawyer and his, his uh, commission is uh, on presidential capacity. And basically, it'll establish a permanent body that can declare that a president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his or her office. It's, you know, basically invoking when to invoke the 25th Amendment, which has become really popular with Donald Trump, who's said to be completely insane, basically mentally ill. And the commission will consist of, you know, former secretaries of state, defense, and treasury, as well as four psychiatrists and former presidents. But basically what it will consist of is the establishment and a very geriatric establishment. They're all formers who will decide if the president is sane or insane, which could potentially prevent 
a president who's seen as a threat to the establishment or insufficiently compliant to it from coming into office and it will be a permanent body. And I mean, I don't know how you can deny that this is another component of what Trump people would call a deep state. But in any case, there is a craze for commissions right now, a craze to uh, impose sort of technocratic and expert control over government in the wake of this uh, chaos in the Capitol and a normalization of de facto military rule or emergency rule. The, uh, the problem I have here <clears throat> in approaching all this is that there is an aspect of legitimacy to it in the sense that I do think that Trump deserves to be impeached for this. I do think that he incited this mob. And before that, his behavior about stop the steal and pushing his conspiracy theories about how the election was stolen, I do think that is worthy of impeachment. But the problem is, of course, that will be exploited to make this all about Trump to help expand the powers of the national security state and to avoid accountability, as we talked about, for the elements of the national security state that are responsible for this failure, that failed to prevent this from happening. And, you know, it's kind of the same dynamic with Russiagate. You can look at Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn got ousted, I think, because of a conspiracy from the from certain uh, intelligence officials who entrapped him. They made false claims about him. They basically deceptively re-edited. Uh, they, they falsely portrayed the content of his calls with the Russian ambassador, saying that he discussed sanctions, when in reality, we had the actual transcripts. He didn't, except in passing. And that was used to basically sabotage Mike Flynn. In the end, though, Mike Flynn turns out to be a QAnon nut. And uh, not that he wasn't already unhinged before, but it's a case where the they use the very real uh, instability uh, and derangement of Trump and his crowd to then push a nefarious agenda, and that's I think just something that's that we have to grapple with as we as we look at how this goes forward, including with impeachment and whatever other repercussions happen after that. Well, Donald Trump could also be prosecuted. I I think it's clear and undeniable that he incited. Uh, invasion, an invasion of the U.S. Capitol. It, it's, it's just absolutely undeniable when you watch his speech and you look at what was taking place in the days leading up to the Stop the Steal rally. It's absolutely undeniable. But why impeachment is paramount is because not only Democrats, but Republicans from the McConnell wing of the party want to prevent Donald Trump from having the possibility of running again in 2024 or from ruling over the party like a you know a mob boss a mob boss who's running business through a prison phone and which Trump could do I mean I could even see Trump being jailed for a short period and coming back without short of being impeached and still contending for the Republican nomination. If you look at the polls of Republicans, first of all, 68% of Republicans, according to a Vox and Data for Progress poll taken about a week ago, believe that Antifa is responsible for inciting the attack on the US Capitol. I mean, this is a base, a party base that is pretty far gone. And about 58% still approve of what Trump did in challenging the election results. So Trump, regardless of what happens, 
regardless of what anyone says or does, unless he is not legally forbidden from running for the presidency, he can run again and still have a chance of leading the party. And short of that, he can influence the party in a way that few other former presidents have. George W. Bush was an absolutely diminished and even hated man within Republican party circles. Donald Trump will be a sort of spiritual shaman of the MAGA base that he helped bring together, probably along with the QAnon shaman. So that's why I think impeachment is more central to Democrats than even prosecuting Trump for inciting a riot. I have to wonder about the impact of Russiagate and the lack of accountability for it. Because if I were someone who voted for Trump in 2016, I could, I think, very understandably see what Trump just did in refusing to accept the election results and trying to undermine it with a series of conspiracy theories as being analogous to what Democrats and elements of the national security state did throughout his presidency with Russia. Now, I'm not equating the two because the MAGA crowd showed that they were violent, willing to storm the Capitol. But in their own way, on the Democratic side, uh, the intelligence agencies were weaponized to undermine Trump with a series of false leaks, with a very uh, invasive and disingenuous special counsel investigation from Robert Mueller, where they falsely fueled this idea of there being collusion when they knew very early on that there was nothing there, and using a series of indictments on unrelated issues to give the false appearance that they were uncovering some kind of conspiracy, when really every single indictment actually underscored when you read it closely that there was no conspiracy there. So I think Trump voters, I think, are understandably upset at that. They feel as if their candidate was undermined. And I worry that in the absence of any accountability for that, we're just going to see an even greater threat of more violence and certainly more acrimony between the two sides. From the point of view of Trump supporters, Trump allies, the Republican Party, the wing of the Republican Party, where he still holds sway, Russiagate provides justification for his actions on January 6th. And they can easily point to any statement by Nancy Pelosi. She tweeted in April 2017 that the election was stolen uh, by Trump and Russia, uh, Hillary Clinton refusing to recognize the election results, the desire of the Democratic Party led by Adam Schiff to essentially reverse the election through the Mueller investigation. And then ultimately, they turn up nothing and they fold the whole thing into the first impeachment over a bunch of events in Ukraine, which show Trump to be extremely sleazy, but really are almost uh, indecipherable to most of the American public. And that helps justify for them their refusal to recognize the election results. It's like saying, well, you refuse to recognize our legitimacy and we clearly won. It's not clear you won because of all those votes that came in late, uh, even though they have no evidence. And so we're just going to do what you did to us back to you. It's the same. I think there's a same, a similar element in the ferocity and paranoid hysteria of their anti-China campaign, which will 
replicate Russiagate and be wielded against Joe Biden is already being wielded against Joe Biden and his son Hunter, who had some business in China. It's going to be used by elements of the national security state, just as Russiagate was, to box Biden in to a hardline position on China. Any sort of diplomacy will be seen as collusion. But there's the, the Republican base that supports Trump, still under Trump's sway, is just going to use it as a mechanism of revenge for Russiagate. So you're, you're absolutely right that, that Russiagate needs to be, that, that this episode can be seen in the light of the Russiagate uh, campaign, because not only does Russiagate excite Trump's paranoid mind and drive his resentful and vengeful tendencies, but it also provided him and his allies with justification, at least in their own minds, for their actions to delegitimize the 2020 election results. So two quick things before I ask you about one of your latest reports for the gray zone on a key figure at the Capitol protest, John Sullivan. But on Hillary Clinton, so she officially accepted the election results, but then she was very artful in refusing to accept uh, them in practice by calling Trump a puppet of Russia for four years up until the present and calling him an illegitimate president, even though she had officially uh, accepted the results after the election. And then on the China component of Trump's movement, you, you heard this right when you were at the scene at the uh, at the Stop the Steal uh, riot. You heard people talking about China in a paranoid way, if I understand it correctly. I mean, that's most of what I heard. I would never deny that this crowd might be animated by anti-blackness or anti-Semitism. For sure, there are elements in it that are driven by that kind of racism. But the most vocal resentment that was expressed in my presence was towards China and with the Capitol Police acting as an arm of the Communist Party of China. You work for CCP, and I documented it. I published video, it was it was omnipresent along with anti-communism. Everyone who was seen as obstructing this riot was a communist, period. And of course, anti-communism is America's national religion, and this anti-China campaign is a bipartisan project, not only of the national security state, but of the left of center establishment media, the New York Times, the Washington Post. And you know, for Progress, the progressive left, it's marketed in terms of human rights propaganda. But for the right, it's marketed in terms of China presenting a dire threat to the national sovereignty of the U.S., actually seeking to control the U.S. through Democrats. And it's really breaking through. It's fallen on fertile soil. And I should also mention that there were Falun Gong flags, flags of the anti-China or anti um you know, anti-Chinese government cult that oversees the Epoch Times paper, which is a right-wing paper that is uh, an organ of Trumpism, as well as uh, right-wing anti-communist Venezuelans, right-wing anti-communist Cubans, right-wing anti-communist Eastern Europeans, and so many other figures who are aligned with exile movements that have been weaponized by the U.S. national security state in the service of U.S. empire. They were on the scene. 
So this is sort of an unacknowledged but key factor in providing the ideological coherence to this mob is anti-China hysteria and anti-communism in general. So we spoke earlier a bit, and this is an obvious point, that you compare the militarized response to the Black Lives Matter protests of this past summer to this incredibly lax and weak response that's being generous to the uh, Stop the Steal mob. Um, and there's also this element now where you have Black Lives Matter being used by the right in response to the mob to deflect blame uh, with the presence of a guy named John Sullivan, who has been identified publicly as a member of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And based on that, right wing media figures have claimed that uh, this is evidence that because he was there at the scene, he was filmed egging on the rioters and he was right there when uh, the woman was shot, that this is evidence that Black Lives Matter or Antifa were somehow behind the violence. You did an in-depth report on John Sullivan. You were the first journalist to really uh, dig into his background. Uh, you spoke to a documentarian who was with him, who was filming alongside him inside the Capitol. You also spoke to his brother, which unearthed a very uh, strange aspect of his family history. Uh, now he's been charged uh, as one of the many people indicted for the riot. Talk to us about where this story uh, is at now and what you think um, people should most know about it, especially in light of all the deceptive right-wing claims that have been made about John Sullivan. Well, that's a really good summary. And it's going to be hard to unpack all of the layers of this story in this interview because there's just there are just so many mind-boggling dimensions to the story of John Sullivan, a.k.a. Jaden X. Um, he first became known on a national level for filming the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. And he, played, he published one clip on his Jaden X Twitter account, which showed a gun. You heard him screaming, gun, 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 and then you saw Ashley Babbitt get shot. And so it seemed, you know, well, we, I talked about it earlier in the interview. In that context, she almost seemed like a pure victim. There was really no context surrounding it. But whatever anyone thinks about Ashley Babbitt, when you, saw, when you see the full video that John Sullivan himself published, which is 40 minutes of mostly raw footage of him joining the pro-Trump mob in storming the Capitol, you see that he played a really important, pivotal role in egging the mob on, in pressuring police to put to stand aside and ultimately in egging the crowd on to smash windows. And one of those windows is what Ashley Babbitt climbed through that led her to her death. But he was presented after filming this dramatic footage on Anderson Cooper on CNN by Cooper as a um, left-wing activist. Chris Hayes licensed the foot, MSNBC licensed the footage and Chris Hayes uh, did a whole segment on it where he referred to John Sullivan as a civil rights activist. He was referred to as a liberal activist in the Washington Post. And none of these esteemed publications and journalists bothered to ask, what the hell was a civil rights activist or a left-wing activist doing there? And the story doesn't have any clear answers, although I think I kind of got to the bottom of it by probing his psychological background. 
which is that this is an unhinged individual who has had a very strong presence in Black Lives Matter since the he emerged out of nowhere in Utah during the George Floyd protests last summer, and that he's essentially a nihilist who wants nothing more than to spawn chaos and incite or play a role in starting a civil war and in the process grifting as much as he can by selling riot gear on his expensive riot gear and promoting himself on his pretty slick Insurgents USA website, which is named after the group he started in Utah. And as I mentioned, there are so many layers to this. One of the most uh, shocking layers is that John Sullivan, who's African-American from Utah, him and his, he has a brother who is a right-wing ally of the Proud Boys in Utah and a leader of the far-right grassroots movement in the state. They were adopted by a white army colonel, and it's pretty obvious they're both playing out a serious psychodrama. And the two brothers, they're kind of um, Jacob versus Esau saga. I'm not sure which one is Jacob and which one is Esau. They became the subject somehow of a documentary in the works by a documentarian photojournalist named Jade Sacker uh, from Hollywood, who's working, who are being advised by an Academy Award winning director, Brian Fogel, layer after layer of disturbing details. And this filmmaker was with John Sullivan inside the U.S. Capitol, even encouraging him, saying, we did it, hugging him, you know, thank you for getting me in here. And he says, well, you know, this is going to be the best film you've ever made. So there, there, there is a sort of incentivization for John Sullivan's activity. Well, the, so anyway, the reason I wrote this piece, I'm, I'm, I think I'm giving too many details here. The reason I thought it was important to write this piece was because of that characterization of John Sullivan in mainstream media as a left-wing activist, the right-wing seized on this story to blame the entire Capitol riot on Antifa, on Black Lives Matter. And you can go back to last summer and find in Provo, Utah or Salt Lake City um, photos, and video of him leading Black Lives Matter protests. But the story that wasn't told, which I told, you know, talking to people actually in the movement, was that Sullivan would go from activist community to activist community and get kicked out, immediately ejected, banished because of the kind of destructive behavior he would engage in everywhere that would always harm Black Lives Matter in Portland, in Seattle, in Utah. Black Lives Matter actually worked with his right-wing brother to get him ejected from the community. And then he came here to Washington, D.C., where I was told that he helped sabotage several rallies, including an action to prevent the Proud Boys from rampaging through downtown D.C. So it's obvious this is someone who's not wanted by Black Lives Matter, who's not wanted by Antifa. The right is using him as Exhibit A to blame the left for the Capitol riot. It's obviously fallen on fertile soil, given that 47% of Americans and 68 Republicans, according to this Vox poll, believe Antifa incited the riot. And yet, who is he? We still don't know. Why was he initially let go by the FBI when they interviewed him or questioned him on a DC street when he was detained 
on January 7th, the day after the riot? Why was he let go and free to go back to Salt Lake City? Why was he only arrested after my article and a flurry of other articles came out? What was taking place when Rudy Giuliani accidentally tweeted a text conversation he was having with John's brother, James Sullivan, who said he was working with the FBI to pin the blame for the Capitol riot on John Sullivan and Antifa. We don't really have answers to those questions, but I did the best I could to try to get to the bottom of who he was and what motivated him and to try to push back on this right-wing campaign of disinformation, which obviously for the right hasn't worked. It's not like they're stopping. He remains exhibit A in their demented narrative. Well, we'll link to that article. It's called Chaos Agent Right-Wing Blames U.S. Capitol Riot on Notorious Instigator Banished by Black Lives Matter. And we'll also link to your new report on the militarization of the red zone uh, inside D.C. in the aftermath of the MAGA riot. Max Blumenthal, editor of The Gray Zone, author of The Management of Savagery. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Aaron.